Hey, sports fans, you're tuned into the Emerald City Fandom Podcast. We're Seattle fans talking Seattle sports. We're your hosts. I'm Connor Fredrickson. And I'm Sam Hoganson. You ready to get started? Let's send it. Welcome back to the pod, folks. This is episode 21, and we have a ton to cover tonight, but we have an extra special guest on tonight's episode, and I'm going to let Sam take the reins here. Go ahead and introduce our special guest, Sam. I'm kind of kicking myself. It took us 21 damn episodes to get this guy on. I mean, partially he's coaching in the Pac-12. He's a special teams quality control coach down at Oregon state. I think we've mentioned him before, but Ryan Sapardo, dear friend of mine, we went to school together K through 12 many. He was, you know, my go-to Husky fan during our apple cup parties. We had a couple of Cougar friends that would show up and Sapardo always had my back. So we had some good times growing up together one one apple cup in particular stands out more than more than others we played some football in the front yard at halftime and this guy practically broke my leg and my dad drove me to the emergency room and I had to listen to the rest of the game on the radio but none you know nonetheless Sapardo's finally here on the Emerald City Fandom podcast we're happy to have you how are you doing tonight I'm doing good thanks for having me on guys Absolutely. I know you've mentioned that you've listened to the podcast before, so you know how we start these bad boys off. What are you sipping on? Well, I got myself, you know, I got to stay true to being in Oregon. I got a nice fresh haze IPA out from Bend. Oh, it's good stuff. I, Caroline and I, when we got married, we did like our short little honeymoon in Bend. It's like that place is a brewery town. They have like, um, oh, and during the summer, they have like a brewery tour by floating the river so like you rent a floaty and you like hop on the river and you hop out at like certain spots to go to like crux brewery or whatever i forget which ones they are the shoots is down there that's a good pick yeah no it, or you can't beat oregon beer yeah i mean i'm not a huge beer guy myself but my uncles are and most of the beers that they drink come from come from oregon so i don't know connor you probably would agree. I, I imagine the craft the craft beer in Oregon is pr- probably better, like than than Seattle for the most part. Um, they're at least they're more established, I would say, with yeah. names like Deschutes. I mean, that's that's Talk one of my go tos for sure. So, what are you sipping on, Connor? Um, I am going back to my Scotch ways tonight. I got a bottle of Glenlivet from Ooh. one of our loyal listeners, Nick Schoenwald. Um, so it was a, it was a birthday gift last week that he dropped by. So very, wow. very generous, um, too much, but, uh, hope that Nick is listening and just want to let him know that I'm enjoying, enjoying that bottle right now. Well, you Sam. Well, I guess happy birthday to you. We never talked about your birthday on the podcast, but it's two weeks ago now, man. It's like kind of, yeah, we had a nice little milk at this point. We had a nice little zoom birthday party, had a good time. We did. Um, I am actually changing it up a little bit in the, on the whiskey bourbon trail here. I, you know, got lazy this week, didn't make it to the grocery store. So I primed out some Whole Foods and wouldn't you believe it? Whole Foods didn't have Jack Daniels. So I was like, oh, what the hell? Now I got to spend 
extra money to get bullet bourbon, which, you know, I guess jokes on me. I do like it, but it's not my normal JD. It's, it's better for you though. Yeah. I mean, it, it's probably, I'd say it's probably my favorite whiskey in like that next tier. Sure. Yeah. I, that's, that's one of the better bang for buck bourbons out there, I'd say. And their rye is good too. Bullet just in general is a solid, solid go-to. So got a cool Very name. Nice. I'm, I'm a sucker for marketing. Like <laughs> I'll take it. <laughs> I get it. I get it. All right. So why don't we just jump into this? I mean, it's awesome to have a resource and get a little bit of an inside scoop on kind of the crazy ass year that 2020 was particularly in the pac 12. Um, but before we get into some of the nitty gritty, Ryan, why don't you just get our listeners up to speed in terms of, you know, maybe even taking steps all the way back to your own personal journey and relationship with the game of football. You know, you played college football and kind of the journey that's gotten you to the position that you're in now. Yeah. Sounds good. So besides breaking my leg, <laughs> that's where it all started. It's like, Oh, this kid, maybe, maybe he's got something. <laughs> I think he got me back, you know, the next day, get a nice little rib shot playing that all time quarterback, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I actually started playing like tackle football in seventh grade. We played at Evergreen middle school, Timberwolves. And, you know, I started off thinking I was going to be a quarterback like every fat kid does. You had a cannon. <laughs> I could throw it further now or probably then than I can now. Yeah. Uh, so I actually ended up, you know, somehow made it to the whole line. I don't know how that would happen, but <laughs> I played center and, you know, one day they're like, Hey, we need a long snapper. And, you know, that's kind of where I started. I was horrible my seventh grade year, worked really hard on it over the summer, got pretty good eighth grade year and then was fortunate enough to go to Murphy and, and get to play varsity as a freshman on that. And then, you know, kind of went from there. I went to junior college for like six months down in Southern California. Victorville, California is probably the worst place you'll ever go to. Besides Pullman. And, and then from there, I went to Pullman. You can't, you can't, you can't, you can't comment on that, Sam. <laughs> I was just and setting then, him up. Oh, yeah. I knew you were. And then uh, I was at Washington State. I ended up um, breaking my foot and I got into coaching that way. So, you know, I started off as student assistant, you know, I'd break down all the film, I'd help with the practices, showing scout cards, whatever it is. From there, I met uh, Jeff Choate, who ended up at the University of Washington. And after I graduated, I went to UW, where I was a volunteer intern. So Sam, you know, he came and rode the gator one day when we were chasing geese. Yep. It was the, the way I made some money while I was working there. And then, um, yeah, from there, Choke got the head job at Montana State, followed him there, special teams quality control, kind of really started learning and developing and, and got lucky enough to come to Oregon State where I'm going on my fourth season with, uh, with the Beavs. That's quite the journey. It's, oh. it's awesome. I, and I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but when we were younger and just throwing the ball around in the backyard, didn't your grandpa always tell you, he, I, I feel like one day he took like us group of kids at halftime of like a Super Bowl, and he was like, "Listen, if you guys want to play football, learn how to kick, punt, or long snap, because you guys aren't going to play any other position." <laughs> oh, I'm sure he did. Yeah, I'm sure he did. He told me too. If I ever went to Oregon, is, is your grandpa Dick Baird? <laughs> I actually, I used to talk to Dick Baird almost every day at practice. 
Nice. That E Dub. He was a big time ST guy. He's cool, oh, yeah. man. For sure. He, yeah, he, he has some he has he has a little crimson in his blood. He's mostly husky though. Mostly husky, but he is dedicated to winning the kicking game, as yes. he always oh, yeah. says on the honks. Cool. Well, thanks for the intro on that, getting some context into some of the stuff that we'll get into here. But I guess just like off the top, man, 2020, at least as a fan, was a whirlwind, just like trying to figure out if games are going to be played or whatnot. I can't imagine what it was like, you know, being on, you know, part of the staff and the team, just like high level in general, like how did COVID affect day-to-day work life, day-to-day life for the student athletes i mean it had to have been a massive change from you know previous years for sure yeah definitely so like the first change kind of comes in fall camp so in fall camp you're kind of almost like you're like an nfl team you don't have school especially being a quarter system um team right so you're mm-hmm. there all day all night yeah. but with covid they treated it like the 20 hour rule like you do during the season so you know you guys weren't in there if it wasn't practice or meetings, right? There was a 20 meetings. Is the 20 hour rule? Is that like 20 hours? Yeah. So practice or practice meetings and lifting. Gotcha. You only get the guys for 20 hours a week during the season. I didn't know that. Yep. So if you want to come in on your own and watch film, like they're more than welcome to, but you're not allowed to have more than required 20 hours. Oh, gotcha. Gotcha. It's not like a mandated, like, coaches can't have more than 20 hours of contact type situation no if the kid wants to come do anything voluntarily they can do it voluntarily cool but uh yeah that was the kind of the first change you got the same amount of practices practice time was about the same all that but when you get to practice right you had a you still had to do your six feet spacing right mm-hmm. you weren't in a drill you had to have your mask up so that was kind of a, a huge change. And then, you know, you had all the testing and, the, and like when you walk into the building, you got to get your temperature taken, answer all these questions, get a wristband, fill out a survey. <laughs> Definitely a different deal. That's pretty intense. What about just like even some of the before fall camp, like strength and conditioning stuff? I imagine it's probably, you know, for different regions was probably different. What was that like for you guys in Corvallis? We we were pretty fortunate. Like Benton County does a good job of, um, you know, we had really strict guidelines that we had to follow and we were, you know, being a smaller population area, we were able to follow a lot of those guidelines and have our guys around like UCLA. They weren't in the offices from basically March to July. Dang. You know, (laughs) Yeah, so that was a huge, you know, UW being in a big metropolitan area, that's hard. Yeah, the reason I asked is because I saw pictures from some of the Husky Husky workouts during the offseason, and we moved a lot of, like, our squat racks and shit outside and, like, try to, you know, space everything out. And it was like the guys couldn't even really be in the gym indoors. I can't imagine. I mean, that was – I mean – I think Saha does a pretty damn good job as a strength and conditioning coach. I'm sure they found ways around it, but not being able to be inside and working out in the off season. I think I mentioned on the, on the podcast earlier was, you know, early in the season, I felt like we weren't the same level of strength and conditioning that we're used to seeing. And I thought that maybe that played a role in it, but sounds like you guys were able to kind of take care of some of that stuff. And again, 
maybe an advantage to being in a smaller town probably helped a lot. Yeah. Like our guys did, and our guys are, you know, it's a huge sacrifice. Like they took on the season, right? You can't be around your friends. You can't do things normal college kids are going to do. Yeah. Cause you want to, you know, play football and, you know, have a chance to have a season. Um, but yeah, I think the strength conditioning thing was a huge, like hidden deal. Cause you saw a lot of soft tissue deals throughout the country. Yeah. Even in the NFL, we saw that too. Oh yeah. And you know, lifting a milk jug ain't the same as being in a gym. <laughs> yeah. And then, you know, the competitive piece of being with your teammates lifting makes a difference, you know, and you don't have coach Zapardo yell screaming <laughs> in your ear while you're lifting at home. Yeah, exactly. And then, you know, you don't have the same access to nutrition that you do when you're on campus. Yeah, that's probably a huge deal. If they're not getting in those meals at the cafeteria or whatever it is, and they're forking down some, you know, seat or what is it? CPC, cinnamon toast crunch for breakfast. Not the same as a big old plate of eggs and bacon and the good stuff. Oh, yeah. So, you know, the nutritionists, every back to old school has nutritionists. Yeah. They do a good job of stocking wherever they're at, you know, the fueling bar. They got, they'll have sandwiches or Gatorade drinks or muscle. Protein shakes. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, those guys miss a lot of that. So, us having, you know, whatever it is, you know, let's say 80 guys working out where some schools have like 12. That makes a huge difference. For sure. And then I think too, like, uh, those guys just being around each other makes a huge difference in kind of that camaraderie. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. So you, you mentioned earlier, Ryan, that like the, like the chance to play, right? Like these guys are sacrificing for a chance to play. And that was the feeling for a while, you know, going into this season until the, the PAC 12 got this rapid testing. And then two weeks later decided that they were, they were going to, play an abbreviated schedule what was that like limbo time like I mean for for a lot of the the athletes and you guys as coaches like what was that were you guys just still obviously just preparing to play if like your number was called obviously the season was off for a number of weeks there what was what was it like on the inside at that point where you and like what did you have to like overcome kind of in during that period yeah, so, um, you know, I'll just take for me personally, right? You get your first schedule of the year, right? So we were supposed to go play Oklahoma State. Right. So during March, backing up a little bit, I'm breaking down Oklahoma State, Portland State, Colorado State. So I wasted probably a good 15 hours doing that. We get our second schedule, right? We're, I think we were going to open up with Cal. All right, well, I'm going to break down all of Cal. So what I decided is after the second one got canceled, I'm just going to break down the whole Pac-12. <laughs> just going to do it all. Yeah. yeah. So, so luckily with special teams, you know, you only have about 24 to 32 plays a game. Sure. So that's not as bad. And with the system we have, I can copy and paste a lot of stuff over to like, all right, Arizona versus Cal. All right. I break down Arizona. I copy it over to Cal and just switch. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I was able to break down the whole pack 12 in about two weeks. Yeah. So by the time the season, you know, like you're saying that two week limbo period, it's just like, stay ready, know something's coming and, you know, have that unwavering faith. Something's going to work out. Mm-hmm. 
and we're going to be able to play. The funny thing about the Pac-12, us and UCLA were the only two teams that played seven games. I was just going to ask that. I was running through in my head, and I was thinking, did Oregon State even have a game canceled? No. So we were the only team in the Pac-12 that played our schedule. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because UCLA played Cal that first week. That was that Sunday game, right? It was like last yeah. minute change. And that was the first time Cal has been together as a team was at that game. <laughs> yeah. That's crazy. Berkeley was nuts. I mean, that's, I mean, yeah, because Cal, that was, you know, obviously as a Husky fan, you know, going through a similar thought process, it's like, okay, we're, super jacked up to have the Wolverines Michigan come to town that obviously didn't pan out and then you get your full Pac-12 you know second season schedule basically that gets canceled and it's like all right we're prepping for Cal Cal has the outbreak we don't have our first game of the season so we're kind of on the sidelines waiting for the following week which was our matchup with you guys and even then that was kind of like I guess it was a, a similar theme for most games of the season throughout the Pac-12. It was yeah. like, there are always, the, always these inklings and rumors like, oh, shit, like, is this team going to be able to play, like, COVID issues? And I know with our matchup with you, it was kind of like down to the wire a little bit whether or not it was going to play. I think some of that probably got stirred up just because we were all paranoid because our game the previous week had gotten canceled, but – I don't know if this is something you can even talk about or not, but how legit were those concerns going into the UW OSU game, whether or not it was going to get played? Well, the funny thing is like you texted me that small, that morning or whatever. And I thought something happened to UW. Like, I'm like, uh, like, I don't know something happened to Washington. Like they're on our side. There was no concern. Like, yeah. And ready to go on a plane the next day to Seattle. The problem yeah. we ran into with you guys is we had no film on you. Yeah. And I guess that's a really good question because I know that's one thing that Connor and I talked about on that yeah. first game of the season podcast that we had was, you know, I'd be really curious to get your input in that situation. You guys had, we were trying to debate what is the, the greater advantage? The fact that you guys had a game under your belt and kind of the chance to, you know, get the first game jitters, knock off some rust out. Or is it more of an advantage to be a total secret, you know, first time head coach, first time offensive coordinator for the Huskies. Like you said, you didn't have film on us. If you had to say one way or the other, which would be the stronger advantage in your opinion? Uh, I think having the first game is a huge advantage. Yeah. It's like you get guys that get to play game speed. They get to understand how the feel is and all that stuff. And, like, if you're a good enough coach, you'll figure out what the other team's doing within a quarter, right? You get a general consensus of, like, hey, this is what they're trying to do when we do this. Yeah. Right? They run through their script on offense, right? Donovan does his first script. You're like, okay, he's, you know, this is what he wants to emphasize. Run the damn ball, apparently. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It wasn't that complicated, Um, was it? But from, like, special teams, special teams is, and I'll I'll fight anybody to death on this one, is, like, 80% personnel and like 20% scheme, right? Mm-hmm. You're going to be able to scheme guys up on plays, but you know, football is about the Jimmy and Joe. It's not the X's and O's. Yeah. And I, you know, that that's a huge 
deal, like not knowing who the quarterback's going to be, right? Because you're going to prepare, you know, if it's a more mobile guy, if it's a more pocket passer guy, if it's a true freshman, whatever the situation is, like you, you're going to have a little bit of difference in your play calling with that. Yeah. Speaking about like the 80% personnel, I know this is a guy that Connor and I kind of, you know, gave him a little bit of a ribbon before a matchup with you guys because of his smaller stature, Champ Flemings. I know as soon as you listen to that podcast, you let me hear it. You're like, hey, just <laughs> wait. He's a badass. And he ate us up, especially in the return game. So I I can I can understand from that perspective, like he's a pretty dynamic returner and that definitely showed in that first game against UW. I guess, you know, I'll give you the the platform and the airtime here to kind of shove that one in our face a little bit. What do you think about your boy Champ? I mean, you can't not love Champ. I mean, he's like five five, doesn't weigh, you know, he's 160 pounds wet, but he will like <laughs> get in a back alley fight. Like that's who I want to bring with me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, that dude has got big heart. He went up and, you know, he was on You Got Moss, he was top ten sports center, like but the dude plays with a chip on his shoulder. And you know, like, you know, hard work is going to beat talent every time when talent doesn't work hard. And that dude has some talent and he works his ass off. Yeah. He talks that talk too, for sure. Oh yeah. I he saw him spitting, get up and he was start spitting in some of our guys' faces for sure. Not like <laughs> literally, but you know, he was, he was yapping. That's he for was sure. yapping for sure. Yeah. Oh yeah. He'll let him, he'll let him know about it too. Man, he, you're he's you're he's a Jamal off. Adams type a little bit, isn't he? Sam. <laughs> Maybe in the yapping department, sure, but at least Champ Flemings is talking shit after he runs a kickback for 50 <laughs> yards. I'm okay with that. <laughs> but yeah, he kind of it kind of reminds me of something, you know, Daddy Sam used to always tell me. He's like, Hey, with dogs, are you scared of the black lab that weighs 80 pounds but just wants to like lick your legs and be pet? Or are you scared of the smaller little like rat looking dog that's foaming at the mouth? ready to like bite your ankles. I'm like, get the little thing away from me, man. (laughs) So I think there's a lot of truth to that. You know, we've seen it before in Husky history too, whether it's a guy like, you know, on the, on, on the hardwoods, like Nate Robinson or Isaiah Thomas, you know, hard over, hard over height. Nate Nate Robinson on the football field too. Yeah. On the football field too. He freshman year. I kind of wish he would have stayed with football a little bit. He was a good player. Yeah, it things turned out okay for him on the basketball court. So yeah, not so much in the boxing ring, but we'll leave that. <laughs> no, we won't talk about that. Pray, <laughs> pray for Nate. About, yeah. Pray for Nate. Yeah, we won't talk about that too much. That's that's a different <laughs> athleticism doesn't really translate that well over there if you haven't done it before. But yeah, if you have no experience. Kind of getting us back on track here to the you know, going back to the coronavirus from an inside perspective. I think you know, the media did a pretty good job covering a lot of the, you know, intricacies and nuances that that brought to each individual team conference. But one of the things that I think hasn't gotten a lot of airtime yet, and maybe, you know, we just haven't totally wrapped up the 2021 recruiting class, but from your perspective, what's COVID like been, you know, from a recruiting perspective and not being able to host kids on campus. And I can imagine that that, you know, recruiting is such a huge, you know, part of college football that has now just 
at least from an outside perspective, seem to be relegated to Zoom calls like we're doing now. So what's that been like? Yeah, recruiting's kind of your you're like your heartbeat of your program, right? Because that's where you get your kids, that's where you build your culture, you know, those kind of things. And you know, not being able to see kids on their high school campus either when you get into an evaluation period. You know, you you can't go sit there and talk to the high school coaches and be like, hey, well, you gotta go check this guy out. You know, you gotta do that all over the phone, where you can't go do that and build an in-person relationship with those guys. Um, but it's huge. I mean, it's just not being able to see a quarterback throw or kick or kick makes mm -hmm. you like really got to trust that film evaluation. And like uh, there's a beyond the sticks podcast with Chris Peterson. And he talks about that. Like seeing a kid live is so much different than watching the huddle tape. Cause you can't see some things on the huddle tape, right? You can't see how they interact with their teammate on the sideline when they have a bad series or a bad play. How do they react when they go to the sideline? You know, those different things you can't see anymore. Yeah, that's one of the questions that I also have for you from the inside on recruiting. Something that I've always thought, you know, I, both Connor and I kind of get really deep in the weeds on Husky football recruiting. And I'll look at our list of prospects or commits and just study the hell out of their huddle tape. But you're really just getting their highlight reel, right? And so are without being able to go down and visit or host kids at a camp or on campus, put them through some workouts. Are coaches and the recruiting staff right now relying on kind of that same thing, just huddle tape or are there other databases of, you know, full game films for high school kids that you guys have access to, or are you just watching highlights and, making your calls based off of that at this point, obviously phone calls and things like that, but. Yeah. I think just diving into the background of the kid has become so much more important. Talk to anybody you can about the kid. Yeah. I mean, you're going to do that anyways, but like how much more important it is now is crazy. Like a lot of these kids will can do the seven on seven and stuff, but it's not. Not the same. Not always the same. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Well, while we're on the subject of recruiting too, I mean, a lot of these players, especially in the Pac-12 along the West Coast that a lot of these schools are recruiting, obviously didn't have a senior season or have yet to have a senior season. And I want to know kind of your thoughts on obviously how that, how that affects a kid's exposure. Sam and I have talked about, you know, that it's really the camps that tend to um, kind of really uh, emphasize the ability of a player and that's kind of how they get their name out there. Um, in, in the recruiting uh, ranks, but obviously there's, there's game tape and that's, that's, a, that's a huge huge piece of recruiting as well. And these kids didn't get a chance to put on any kind of game tape. Are you going to see like a lot more kind of like walk-on opportunities for these kids? Um, I guess, what are, your, what are your just overall thoughts, I guess, on, on that, that premise? It's kind of a tricky one because like a lot of kids, you know, you grade their film. If they're not like an automatic offer after their sophomore, junior year, like they're what's called like a senior eval, right? You want to see that senior tape. Like, like Sam, like, didn't you grow a bunch between junior and senior year? Yeah. I think yeah. if you opened up your senior year yearbook, you would see me in the, what are they called? The superlative section. And I was voted the most changed in my four years because I was a little guy, got thrown around at football practice freshman and sophomore year, and I was like, ah, 
had enough of that, but yeah, I, I probably grew between my sophomore end of my sophomore year. And by the time I graduated, I think I grew eight inches and gained over a hundred pounds. Wow. It was, so, I mean, it happens for sure. <laughs> and like a lot of kids do that. They grow between their junior and senior year. And, you know, you want to see like, uh, you know, if this kid was six, two, I think we'd take him. Well, now he's six, two, but I want to see how he moves at six, two. Yeah. Right. I want to see how he moves at two fifty. So are you, so let me, Am I hearing this right? You're saying that if I had stuck with it and played and grown that way, I could be, you know, I could have been a Husky player. I mean, you, I mean, you got big enough, man. Maybe a little outside backer or something. Yeah. Getting after that quarterback, baby. Yeah. You and uh, they would have, maybe they took you instead of betting photo. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. I mean, pretty much the same thing, right? Yeah, totally. Yeah. Yeah, totally. I'm the exact opposite. I, I grew to five, eight in like seventh grade and didn't grow an inch after that, basically so, gained about 20 pounds in, in the middle of that. But other than that, about the same. So. Yeah. I think I grew like three inches. So I wasn't as, the, as drastic, but a lot of kids like that's their deal. For sure. Yep. The late bloomers get missed. Cause you know, they, you know, they potentially had no recruiting going on mm-hmm. and then all of a sudden they blow up that senior year coaches might be a little more interested yeah yeah i don't know about you sam but i I mean i think a lot of it has to do with scholarship numbers right now but i've seen a lot of preferred walk-on offers from uw um and i don't know if some of that is you know based on this whole premise of you know maybe some late bloomers who didn't have game tape that maybe would have gotten on the radar of some other schools and they're going to take a walk-on opportunity possibly at uw um but just kind of wanted an inside scoop on that though. So that's, that was a really good answer though, Ryan. So thanks. To go to go. Yeah. Kind of on your walk on point too. It's like walk on seasons typically after signing day, mm-hmm. but coaches aren't on the road and they haven't been on the road since last spring evaluation right. period. So they, all they do is have time to watch film and time to talk to dudes. So like those walk on offers are coming out a little earlier. Also, a lot of these kids like to sign on signing day. Yeah. Signing something that's non-binding. Right. Yeah. If you your tuition deposit to the school, you can get announced by the school. Right. Yeah. Which is kind of cool, honestly, to be able to have that moment to, you know, with everyone else on whatever, I forget what day it is, early February. Yeah, that first Wednesday. Which is actually kind of an interesting thing too for UW in particular. I'd be curious if I don't follow Oregon state recruiting that closely, but for UW, it's like our 2021 class is pretty much done with this, you know, the inception of the early signing day. What's that been like? And are you guys kind of in a similar place, you know, obviously with Jonathan Smith and a lot of the Peterson coaching tree present down there at Oregon state, I'd imagine a lot of the philosophies are the same but Peterson was a very much anti-drama recruiter and we tend to have people commit and stay committed and sign as soon as they can. Is that kind of the same scenario down in Corvallis? You guys trying to wrap things up as soon as, I'm sure most schools do try to wrap things up as soon as they can, but it's kind of taken a lot of the excitement and celebration of, you know, national signing day in February away. And I'm curious if you have thoughts on that 
Yeah. Uh, that early signing day has been huge to kind of get guys like, cause then you don't have to hold on to them those extra two months. You can move on to something else, someone else or the next year's yeah. class. Yeah. Find out like what's your fill the other needs you have, right? Like let's say you need two tackles or two, you know, office alignment, whatever it is, you sign the first one in the signing class now. All right. Hey, I got these other three positions filled. We're going super hard to find the best available tackle we can. Yeah. Or guard or whatever it is. Like it's, that early signing day has been awesome just to kind of help, you know, springboard you into, you know, recruiting the next recruiting class. Yeah. I love it. I think it's, I can understand from that perspective that it would be really beneficial to, again, like have the new, the main nucleus of the class locked in, signed, and then really be able to have, you know, two and a half or two months, to really focus in on those, you know, remaining two, three, four, five openings left in the current class. And then I guess it just kind of moves the recruiting cycle up a couple months for the next class. And I, I've really enjoyed it. I think it's take, you know, I obviously love coach Peterson and I appreciate the lack of drama and the heartache of signing days that we've seen with past coaches, but it is definitely something that's new. Obviously, you know, we were talking about it off mic, just, you know, through your high school career and going through junior college and ending up at Wazoo, like how much recruiting has changed from when, you know, our time, but I guess 10 years ago, wait, holy shit. Yeah. We didn't have a class reunion. We didn't have our 10 year class reunion. It was, it was like scheduled. Yeah. Initially, the day we were supposed to go to UW on our like original schedule, and oh. it kind of blew it all up. I'm so far removed from all of that. I don't think I even. Our got class president out had before. just had just started a Facebook group, and like we were just brainstorming ideas, basically of where to have it in like February of 2020. Yeah. And then it was like silent <laughs> for you know nine months or whatever, and then kind of someone piped in at the end of the year so this isn't happening this year right it's like yeah no shit <laughs> yeah it'll be interesting i wonder if they'll reschedule or we'll do a, a joint reunion with the class of 2011 that would be weird that would yeah. be weird <laughs> our class president didn't even schedule it it was some people like hey uh we should probably make this happen so here's a facebook group about it right that's pretty much what ours was so I've pretty much gone dark on social media, so I don't know if the, I don't you, think man. I even got found found out. I'm <laughs> yeah. sure someone some way would have found me. I guess my sister works there, so they would have figured it out. But they would have. They would have. Maybe next year. Um. Anyways, getting back on topic. <laughs> One of my favorite players in the Pac-12 this year, and even in the years past, Jamar Jefferson is a baller. Just how special is he? What kind of guy is he? And like, what are your expectations for him? Because he's he's declared for the NFL, correct? Yeah, Munchie's going to the draft. Munchie. All right, we're already learning something. His nickname <laughs> is Munchie. Oh yeah. So how do you get I that guess, nickname? <laughs> so I guess when he was younger, he used to always just have snacks on him, so they would call him Munchie. That's hilarious. <laughs> but Munch was awesome. Like he worked his ass off. He studied his ass off. And, you know, he kind of brought guys with him by example. Like it, you know, and he, he too, like academically was on a roll. 
Damn. So like, you know, that goes back to, you know, kind of take care of yourself off the field. You're going to take care of stuff on the field too. That's a Chris Peterson disciple right there working for you. I remember when I was at UW, Buda Baker was always on the honor, honor wall. Yeah. Every oh, sh- Buddha. Elijah Molden's the same way. Like, I mean, like that dude's smart. Yeah. <laughs> like that that dude probably could have been like a chemist in another life if he really wanted to. Um chemistry's freaking hard, man. But I guess like looking yeah, forward for looking forward for Jamar, like from my perspective, I feel like he's gonna I mean, running backs have such a short shelf life in the NFL, but man, you look at him, you got size, you have speed, he can catch the ball. I don't I haven't studied him in pass protection, but I'm sure he's damn good at it. I think he's gonna, you know, latch on to I I think he's for sure gonna get drafted. I'd be shocked if he wasn't. But I guess what is your kind of expectation for him at the next level? I think he's going to be a dude. I think he's going to be starting within his first year somehow. He's going to find a way on the field because that's just who he is. He did it as a freshman. The guy that he played over as a true freshman is on the Bears right now. Yeah. I mean, he's playing over an NFL guy when he's a true freshman. Mm-hmm. And he's running over NFL guys every week for the yeah. last three years. <laughs> if, he, if he drops into those middle rounds, man, you know who needs a running back with Carson likely not to be here maybe hide not back dude i would be so pumped i'd be so pumped to have him on the seahawks oh be a pretty good get i think he'd be a really good fit too mm-hmm. oh he'd be a huge fit because he runs behind his pads he's oh, paid yeah. when he's a he's seeing the holes and he just like he dives into the playbook like he knows every single target he needs to hit right i'm going wide awesome. so i hit the outside butt cheek of the tight end well he hits that outside butt cheek every time whatever that pretty unique in like running backs that you've worked with in the past or like i guess that you've just observed in the past uh i don't know i've been around some good backs like ap he's with the bears now yeah miles you guys you guys might know this guy miles gaskin oh yeah all gas no i've heard of him i gotta be there in 15 and watch him you know because i mean i've been around some good good running backs and that patience, I think, is a huge, for sure, key to being a good back. Yeah, yeah. Well, we're starting the hashtag now. Hashtag Jamar to Seattle. Dude, I'm down. Munchie, come on. We need you in Seattle. I, th- I think he's probably going to drop to like a mid round if if that's going to happen. Oregon State man is like low key running back. Oh yeah, oh, yeah dude. Yeah. Jaquiz, Jaquiz, Evanson, yeah. Bernard, Stephen Jackson. Goodness. Teron Ward, Ryan Nall, yeah. Ken Ken Simonton is potentially one of the best backs that ever played college football. He never had to run more than forty yards. Yeah, yeah, well, I'm I'm down with that. OSU, RBU, I'll take it. I'd love it. I would love it. Um, let's talk a little bit about your 2020 season and two and five. You know, probably not what you guys were hoping for, but. Um, one of those wins was over your in-state rival, Oregon. Hell what was yeah. that game like? That came down to the end. Sam and I were about to start our podcast that night, and we like had it up, and I was trying to share screen with him, but YouTube TV was like blocking it, so I couldn't share screen with him. But I was basically like trying to be a play-by-play guy, which now I know I don't have a career in that because I was <laughs> awful at it because I was just like <laughs> reacting to everything going on, and I wasn't really like 
doing my job as mostly far as just, actually explaining. Mostly noises. just curse words. And yeah, noises. it was noises and <laughs> curse words mostly. Um, so, I mean, that was obviously a super exciting ending. And your quarterback goes out at the end. Like, that was like a nuts, nuts scenario. Right at the um, goal line. Yeah. What, I mean, obviously, what does that, what does a win over Oregon mean to you guys as, as Beavers? And then also just like, describe kind of like your, like, what was it like down on the, are you in the sideline or are you up, up in the box? I'm in the box. And You're in the box. Luckily, that game was a highlighter bowl with how foggy it was. I couldn't see yeah. the sideline. That's true. Dude, Dang. I forgot how foggy it was too. That's right. Yeah. You couldn't see on the screen for like, uh, like certain downs as well. Like whenever I was watching the broadcast, that was crazy. Um, but yeah, I mean, like, what was it like in the box? Like at the end of that game? Oh, it's awesome. Like anytime you win, like everybody's fired up, but mm-hmm. I mean, you're yelling and screaming and, and then you see like the other team run down the other side, you know, sometimes when you're losing, you see them yelling and screaming. So it, you know, it's fun. And I mean, that's the first time I ever beat Oregon. So it made it even better. I was super pumped. Sure. I was so pleased. I, I, I fucking hate Oregon to watch Oregon state beat them was just amazing. The question that I have is I know the rivalry game historically has been referred to as the civil war. We're going through a name change. Do we have any, is it official yet? Like I've seen things like the platypus bowl or whatever, like, is there an official name that we're going to go with this thing moving forward? One little quick note, you should go Google the platypus trophy. They had a trophy for it back in the day. The boosters I, used to pass yeah. along. I, you know, <laughs> we're one and zero in the Oregon Oregon State game. So I mean, if we're going to win every year, it's called that. Let's keep doing that. <laughs> yeah, that seems to work. Let's keep it's it up. True. Yeah. I mean, like I've been a part of some pool rivalries. Like, been to a bunch of Apple Cups. Montana Montana State was unbelievable. Oh, dude, I bet. But last year's so Oregon Oregon State game was that was one of the top games I've ever been at. That was, that was unbelievable. I'll yeah. Like it. where, where would you rank that? Is that, is that one or is that like top three probably? That's definitely top two. Yeah. Well, it was fun from a fan perspective, even just like, I mean, not really non-biased, like obviously wanted you guys to win, but at the same time, you know, an outside observer that isn't like a, an actual fan of either team. It was an entertaining as hell game too at the end. So got in the locker room about i don't know 30 40 minutes after the game my phone was still boom 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 boom. <laughs> how many of those texts were from sam yeah no that was that was unbelievable i mean that was that was pretty fun ryan you're lucky i don't have your number because man I, that would have been like probably three times as many texts Sam and I have a group text with Justin, our other our other guest host that is usually here, and um, <laughs> like it's usually like me, like probably like sixty or seventy percent of the time, and then Justin will chime in, and Sam just has like one liners every once in a while, basically. Yeah. I'll throw or, some gifts. or or if he has like a long thought process, like it'll be like a novel, like one yes. text. <laughs> But it'll just that's be like, you know, two texts for every like 10 for me, basically. That's awesome. The best part about that game, too, was it was like a team win. For right? sure. Oh, absolutely. Your backup like, quarterback comes in and wins the game for you, right? I mean, that's. Well, the thing that gets missed in that game, right, is we had three timeouts at the end of the game. What was he? Mm-hmm. Right. We didn't make any mistakes on offense, any mistakes yeah. on defense getting lined that's up. That's great. Here. 
timeout, right? We get that three and out. Yeah. In the five minutes left in the fourth quarter, whatever it is, make them punt, go down and win that on that drive. Yeah. I mean, that, yeah. was, that was huge. That's the game right there. That's awesome. That's fun, man. So obviously like the season probably didn't pan out to what you wanted to, but what, who were some players that like developed for you guys this year that you're excited about for their future? Um, some young names to watch in Oregon States on Oregon State's roster um, for the next, next few seasons. Yeah. I think on the offensive side of the ball, you got, we got pretty talented young receivers. Name's Ryan Beeson. He's out of Texas. Um, but he, he's played a lot as a true freshman. He made a huge, he made an unbelievable catch in our last play of the season against Arizona State. Um, but he, you know, he made a lot of strides as the year went, caught a lot of big balls, had a lot of yards. So he's been good. On the defensive side, our two inside backers, are, they might be the best combo in the country, if not for sure, potentially in the Pac-12. Yeah. They are something else. Are, what, I didn't realize. We'd take them up in freshmen? Seattle. I'll just say that. So Omar Spates, he's a sophomore. And then Avery Roberts, I think he's going to be a junior. They so, are something else. They are bad mofos that play football with some bad intentions, man. I think they combined for like 25 tackles against us. Yeah, Avery led the conference in tackles or was up there in tackles with your boy at Eofosio. Yeah. But I think Coach Bray does a great job at coaching mm-hmm. the backers. He was a big-time backer for the Beavs. Played in the NFL, you know, had his cup of coffee, but he's a hell of a coach and he's his whole room. And there's another kid who played more special teams, John Miller, in that inside backer room that that's going to be special. Yeah, I was impressed. I remember, you know, going into that game, obviously, Hamaka, you know, draws all the attention in the past year or two with his ability as outside linebacker but man that game's unfolding i'm like this omar spates guy i think in that game he against us i think he had like 15 or 16 tackles just looks like an old-fashioned blue collar type linebacker i don't think he wore football gloves in the game and (laughs) i mean he was his biceps were just like ripped and pumped up and it was like dang dude I don't want to get tackled by that guy. Holy smokes. He, and both those two dudes, Omar and Avery, are like selfless. Like, right? You throw them in on special teams, they dominate their dudes. It's not even close. Like, Omar is the, the hold-up machine on punt return. Mm-hmm. He, yeah. We had a game we were playing more of a pro-style punt team, and we threw him out there to hold up a guy. Not even close the whole game. Dude was 20, 30 yards away the whole time. Oh, geez. Gotta love players like that. I kind of missed that this year with our special teams unit. I know like in the past, it was awesome to see guys out there for the Huskies, like Buda Baker running down on kick coverage, Kevin King. Trent McDuffie was out there though. Trent Trent McDuffie McDuffie was out there. He's going to be special. Trent McDuffie's going to be a special punt returner. Trent? Yeah. Yeah. You can see it already. He looked good, man. He's a jitterbug. Unfortunately, he's probably only got one more season to show it. Yeah. <laughs> so he's got he's got he Byron will. Murphy syndrome. Yeah. Yeah, we gotta kick it out of bounds when we play those guys. I mean, he he's special back there. Yeah. I wish we would have been able to see more of that this season. I mean, obviously sure. there were some, you know, some inklings into what he can do back there, but 
I'm just like, man, we need to get a full season in, in 2021 and get, you know, 11, 12, 13 games in, be awesome. I mean, the hard part with this season was, like, you didn't know if your game was going until you basically took the bus on the way to the game. Right. Yeah, even then, like, I'm pretty sure yeah. – I can't remember who it was. Yeah, someone's girlfriend got it. and they had a... it was, it, Wazoo and Cal got canceled with an hour to go before – like, uh, they, were, they were starting to get off on the field <laughs> – ups and they canceled the game everyone left the field and i can't remember i think it was uh, i can't remember if it was wazoo or cal that i think had i think it was cal yeah i think that, I took probably, that was crazy i got close to probably 60 or 70 covid tests wow over the course of since i've been getting tested yeah but it's That's like intense. I, would, I would break down every team every week because i don't know who we're playing until yeah I know because yeah, if it gets canceled on Wednesday or Thursday, it's like okay, well, this other Pac-12 team got canceled, so like you two are going to play each other Saturday right. night or Sunday morning. Like you got three days. Have did that happen for you guys this year, nope. or did you guys you guys played as scheduled? All, as scheduled, game? only team in the Pac-12 to do it. Wow, crazy! It was a. Uh, I mean, that makes it exciting though, right? Like, sure, I, I want to play somebody on two days or three days, like. You know, it's it's a challenge and it makes it fun. It is a challenge for sure. It's good to embrace the challenge. Um, do we have any like other college related items to get to with Ryan? I know he's a Seahawks fan, so we want to get to some Seahawks stuff. But yeah, I think let's jump into this Seahawks stuff. I mean, only thing that I would be wondering about is like what's next with spring ball and fall camp, but I'm pretty sure we're all kind of in the same place with that just in terms of society and the country and the world, I guess. And, you know, we'll see how this thing unfolds with vaccinations going out and hopefully we can have something that resembles a normal football year and we'll get off to the races, but yeah, I'm, I'm, you know, really appreciative of you coming on here and, and talking to us about Oregon state, Pac-12, college football from the inside. But now let's take a step back, put your fan cap on, coach hat <laughs> comes off. And, man, where do the Seahawks go from here? I mean, obviously, one of the things that Connor and I talked about in our previous episode was, you know, is this a season that you would define as a success or not? Was it a disappointment? We kind of ended up landing somewhere in the middle where, you know, in the grand scheme of, franchise history or just NFL history anytime you win your division you get a playoff berth like that's a pretty good year you have to be happy with that but the same time this roster just had so much promise and to see us exit the first week of the playoffs has to be a bummer you see you know we lose our offensive coordinator to quote unquote philosophical differences (laughs) and the offense really struggled down the stretch. And I'm just curious as a fan, you know, watching the games and obviously really being a football junkie, what are your just general thoughts on how the season unfolded, how the season ended with the coaching, you know, vacancy, where does this offense go? I don't, I don't know. I mean, like watching that playoff game against the Rams, I was already painting our house, which made it even worse trying to watch it while I'm doing that. <laughs> but like it was it was a struggle i i take it back to i think it was the was it the cardinals game when they kept bringing like zero pressure yeah. 
just didn't know what to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. NFL, NCAA, whatever it is, like you got it's a copycat league, right? If you yeah. show up on film, you're not good at you. <laughs> you better see, see, see it. a lot of it. Yeah. Right. Like they Arizona brought creepers, right? Where you're you're rushing four when it looked like you're rushing five or rushing six, and they're dropping dudes in the coverage that should, and then the CX just couldn't adjust off it. And it's just like ever since that game, it seems like they just started tanking. Yeah, it was it was frustrating. I mean, we talked about seeing the same things and just seemed like philosophically on offense, we didn't adjust to getting that look very well. We were still, you know, running these deep play action drop back passes, looking for the you know, bomb over the top. And it's like you don't have that kind of time when they're bringing eight. Like it's yeah. just not going to work. And the other thing too, is like, you go look at the breakdown on like what, you know, zone runs versus gap schemes and the Seahawks are like oh, so much zone run. Right. Like if you feel like your offensive linemen are, you know, more of a detriment, run that gap scheme, like create holes and give yeah. your like, something to run into. Like we, we, I think me and you were looking at it like the Niners versus Seahawks, right. And the Niners have typically a better run game. Mm-hmm. Mix it in way more gap schemes and you know your powers, your counters, your your duos, whatever it is. Misdirection in general. Yeah, it's just where the hell was that? Like they just got you know stuff. It was not fun to watch. I mean, there's so many three outs. It was unbelievable. Yeah. Do you see a problem that like Pete Carroll coach teams rely way too much upon? winning one-on-one battles uh i mean football is all about winning your one-on-ones sure but is there a lack of scheming going on like is he just so like overly reliant upon that Stubborn. that's a that's a hard one because like without watch like we have the access to all the 22s i'll have to go watch it I thought you would have watched him by now. I know, yeah. I should have. <laughs> Didn't you know what, you're coming what, on this podcast? What do, what, do you, what, Sorry, what, do you, what do you do for work, man? What do you do for work? No, I'm just kidding. Man, these oh. video playbooks, I'll have to stop doing them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It'll be interesting. I mean, definitely when we were kind of looking at the difference in the run schemes between the Seahawks and the 49ers, it's just like, you know, as a fan watching the season unfold, it felt you know, I'm a very intuitive fan. Like I just kind of feel the game and I kind of take away general sentiments from what I saw. And it felt like we were just running that inside outside zone over and over and over again, relying super heavily on Chris Carson on the inside zone. There's just like, no. And so like seeing the data actually back that up was really confirming for me at least and it's like, as part of this offensive coordinator search, I would love, like we mentioned a couple of candidates in our previous episode, I would love to get Mike McDaniel, the running, the running game coordinator from 49ers and just add some element of, you know, gap scheming in the run game, some sort of counter. I would love, and one of the other things I picked up on was this year more than others, I really saw the rust, the threat of Russell Wilson in the read option game disappear. And it just seems like we need, you know, Pete Carroll is stubborn. We all know that he's going to 
you know, continue to try to win the Super Bowl with his formula of winning football games, run the ball, control the clock, take care of the ball, play good defense and get out of the game with a dub. And we're going to be running the ball a lot as long as Pete Carroll is our offensive or Freudian slip there. He's not our offensive coordinator, but maybe he definitely has a hand in it. And maybe that led to some of the philosophical differences, but as long as he's at the helm, I think we'll be running the ball and we just need to get a coordinator in here that can just refresh and, you know, show some different looks, be a bit unpredictable, run out of different formations for once. Like it's gotten really, really predictable. Oh, totally. And like, I was looking at the scoop the other day and they were saying Doug Peterson, I think met with Seattle, but he's going to go take a year off now. And the other thing too, is I think the offensive line coach for the Seahawks left to go be the OC in Arizona. So uh, Pete's son, I think it's Brennan Carroll. Brennan Carroll. Yeah. Yeah. He left to go be the, he left. Yeah, yeah, he's, he, he's OCA for fish. Yep. Oh, yeah. damn. But I think it's like, you just got to get a guy in there that's going to, you know, you have to cater to your quarterback, right? Russell Wilson's quarterback. You got to figure out what he does best and cater to that. And that's the end result. Because the year before, he was the best deep ball thrower in the NFL. No doubt about it. Yeah. yeah. Right? He probably was first half of the year this year, too. Yeah. I mean, he was arguably the best quarterback in the NFL for the first half of the season. Yeah. He was uh, MVP candidate after, what, the first three, four weeks. It's like he had to screw it up to not win it, and he screwed it up to not win it. Yeah, whether it was him or Pete Carroll's puppet hands coming down onto the offensive scheme after the Arizona game. So we hear – I mean, we hear a lot of – criticism of both pete carroll and brian schottenheimer who's obviously fired now but like how much of the blame goes on russ too like from your eyes Zapardo? like i mean he 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 didn't play well the second half of the year like there's no way around that um i i think we tend to try to make excuses for russell wilson because he's been like kind of like a demigod for a seahawks fan for so long but like he didn't play well the second half of the year like there's obviously flaws in every quarterback's games. And I think that you saw those flaws come out in the second half of the year for Russell Wilson. What are your thoughts on that? And like, I mean, are we, are we excusing him too much from, from the blame blame pie? I think it depends on like what the offensive, you know, mindset was like, how much could he check stuff at the line? How much did he check stuff at the line? Sure. Right. The quarterback's job in the NFL, especially is to like get you out of bad place. Mm-hmm. Right. Like if you see eight in the box, oh, I probably shouldn't run the ball here. Right. I see five in the box. Yeah. Let's check to that run. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that's a huge deal on him. Right. If he wasn't getting into good plays and yeah, you know, that's, you know, that's on Schottenheimer too. Right. Call him plays that sure. you don't do your scouting report and all that, but all of it comes down to adapting, I think. And like, like we've all, we've all said too, I, from, wherever they go with this offensive coordinator search, I want to see more like pre-snap misdirection motion, like whatever, whatever they need to do to get them their players in favorable, favorable positions and be less predictable um, is where they need to go with this offense. So, I mean, we, I know we mentioned some of the candidates on the last podcast. Um, I don't know if you've had a chance to listen to that, Ryan, but, um, I think kind of the, the leading guys at this point 
are um, Shane Steichen, Anthony Lynn, um, Doug Peterson, kind of, but it doesn't sound like he's he's going to pursue an OC job at this point. Um, Adam Gase, uh, the dude that's already within the organization. I can't Nate something. It's not Carol, but like a different guy. I can't I can't remember his name. Um, and then like the most recent name I think was like the Raiders, like QB coach or run game coordinator or something like that. Um, Pat Hamilton, I guess is, is another guy that we we mentioned as well. Um, who are you like most fired up about of kind of the names that have been floated out there? Are there other names that you're looking at that you want the Seahawks to look at? Um, or even just like in general, what, what would you be looking for an offensive coordinator? Sure. Yeah. Even besides names. Yeah. Like the names are, are hard for me because I haven't really dove into that and it's, you know, kind of a different circle within that college NFL realm. Mm-hmm. But I mean, Adam Gase became head coach for a reason. He hasn't called play since 2015 when he was with the bears as an OC, but I mean, he became a head coach for a reason. So, I mean, there's something to that, like that he has had success with that. Mm-hmm. but you typically when you hire a coach you hire the opposite or what that guy's strengths are of the guy you fired so it'll be interesting to see like what shot they thought Schottenheimer was bad at because that's probably what you're going to see in the next hire mm-hmm. but you know if you got a guy peering over your shoulder how hard is it to work all the time yeah, yeah. I think that they're going to hire a yes man like someone that's young a bit more unproven or someone who's old just, you know, needs to collect a couple more paychecks, a couple more years and set off to yeah. retirement. And just like, I think the most damning thing out of all of this is just the rumors around Pete Carroll meddling with the offensive coordinator. Like he's a defensive guy. Like I, I in an ideal world as a Seahawks fan, and in my opinion, and Connor, I know you share this one as well, is the Seahawks would be better off if Pete Carroll just found a proven offensive coordinator, hand the reins over, let him do his job and go from there. I don't think that that's going to happen. I think that, you know, maybe similarly to this opening on the defensive side of the ball for the Huskies, Jimmy Lake might find someone young and new, someone that he can kind of micromanage a little bit, keep his hands and, and plugged into the defensive scheme and play calling I think Pete Carroll's probably going to – I wouldn't bl- it wouldn't blow me away if he had a similar thought process and went for someone that's a bit more green, someone that he can influence to run the offense the way that he wants it to be ran. But it's hard with, like, some of the names that are out there. There's not really – you know, the hot buzz names that Connor mentioned aren't really in that mold that, like, it'll be interesting to see what happens for sure, but – the interesting just, thing, sorry to cut you off. The interesting yeah, thing to look into with the Seahawks too is if, if they're a pension team for the coaches, right? So there's a lot of teams in the NFL that are not pension teams for the coaches, right? So if the Seahawks aren't that pension team and you got a guy that's going to pick between a pension team and a non-pension team, he's going to pick that pension team every time. Interesting. Right? So I've talked to a few NFL guys and like he was a pretty established ST guy and he had – basically the pick of where he wanted to go and he picked the pension team that could totally be unrelated. Yeah. But they have the rule of like, 
15 and 75 or something like that. It's like 15, like your age plus 15 equals 75 or your years in the NFL or whatever it is. Like you can oh, interesting. fat paycheck when you retire, if you can get to it. But yeah. if you're not in that pension program, it's you not know, an option. It, yeah. That'd so be interesting. I wonder if we, we could figure that out somehow, yeah. some way, if the Seahawks are a pension team or not. Because that would be, I totally, I never even thought of that before, but man, that is a huge recruiting advantage for coaches. If you have something like that set up, that would be sweet. Because if you get like a proven guy who like has his pick of the litter. Yeah. But I do like Anthony Lynn. I think he did a good job with Herbert and and all that down there in San Diego. So, I mean, getting a guy that can bowl. The hard thing with the NFL too is, is like, it's not coach Pete Carroll. It's, it's Pete. Yeah. Right? Coach Schottheimer. It's, it's shoddy or Brian, right? Yeah. Our line coach coached the NFL with the Raiders and he had a off at the tackle tell him, Jim, I've had, I've been in the league for 10 years. I've made it to eight pro bowls. I've had five line coaches. They've all tried to change my pass set. I, I ain't changing it. <laughs> it's maybe so a couple million bucks. I ain't going to change yeah, it. <laughs> yeah. So in the NFL, your job is to coach scheme, right? You know, some yeah. guys will do technique and all that, but it will be, it'll be interesting to see what they do. Yeah. I you know one of the things that I would just warn Seahawks fans kind of like wrapping up this segment too is, you know, we just watched, I mean, I, get, I know it hasn't been officially announced or Drew Brees hasn't officially decided, but all signs are pointing towards him retiring. I mean, he won a Super Bowl. He's a Hall of Fame quarterback, and he spent the next decade of his career chasing that Lombardi trophy and never found it again. Russell's been at it now, chasing it for a second time for six or seven years, I guess, and you know, the window is closing rapidly with Pete Carroll, John Schneider, Russell Wilson trio. And it would just be a shame to see us not take advantage of a pretty special football player in Russell Wilson and, and not be able to kind of build this thing from a staff and personnel perspective back up into a Super Bowl contending team. I think we have the pieces, obviously something somewhere along the lines offensively just totally broke midway through the season. But I do think like the nucleus of our team is there. Anytime you have a quarterback like Russell, you're going to be a competitive team. So it'll be interesting to see what happens for sure. And along the same lines, like a guy like Aaron Rodgers. I mean, when did he win the Super Bowl? Was it 2011 or 2009? Long time ago. He's been uh, chasing it. Sounds right. He's been chasing it for the rest of his career too. So sometimes, you know, in conclusion, I think sometimes Seattle fans, you know, with the recent found success with Pete Carroll, Russell Wilson, John Schneider, we've become a little bit entitled, but I do also have empathy to the, to the fact that Russell's not going to be Russell on the football field for too much longer. I do think that he'll, he probably will last in the league for, you know, another I don't know. what. How many years would you put on him? How old is he now? 31? 32. 32. He's probably got, he's probably got 10 years, eight, eight 10 years yeah. of good ball left, but 
it's eight, tough. Pro- probably seven or eight of good ball and then a couple years at the end where yeah we'll see what happens but yeah so we'll see i mean i hope i hope seahawks can get on track you know it'd be awesome to get russell a second super bowl but we'll see yeah i mean yeah oh, sorry, go ahead no no no. I, I i apologize right I, the one thing i just want to chime in on though is i've been thinking about this a lot this past week since we last recorded sam and like i guess one of the one of the reasons why seahawks fans have such expectation is because of russ's expectation for himself like he want he like he he says all the time he wants to be the best ever like he wants to be the greatest that ever played he mentions himself with like joe montana and Too stuff late, like man. that I get it. Like, yeah, a- absolutely. I get that. But like, if you're going to like say that, that you got to like, not only back it up, but like expectation comes with that. Right. So yeah. What are Seahawks fans supposed to think whenever their quarterback is telling them that he wants to be the greatest ever and they're trying to believe the hype. Well, hopefully they can do some basic math and be like, okay, Russell Wilson's got 10 years left. If he yep. wants to catch up to Tom Brady, he's got to win six out of 10. Yep. That's not going to happen. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely not. And but and the Drew Brees comparisons like spot on too. Like yeah. I mean, um, these guys have been compared for years because of their height, but like the success is like very similar too. I mean, Drew Brees won the Super Bowl in two thousand nine, and has been he went back to the championship the year after that, and uh, Russ went back to the Super Bowl after he won the Super Bowl and lost. They lost in the in the. Oh, I guess it, this was wild card, I guess. Um, sorry, wild card round. Um, he made one more conference championship, though, the rest of his career. It's a Hall of Fame quarterback. First ballot, for sure. So One Super Bowl. It's it, hard. Just a little bit of perspective there, folks. I mean, it, it's winning in the NFL is hard, and especially when you've already won one. Like, that's the hardest yeah. thing is getting back to another one. So. Um, I mean, you the, look, the league is not the league is not designed to do no. that. You look around the league and, you know, for all intents and purposes, the majority of our, you know, generation of, you know, coming up as football fans, the great quarterbacks and Aaron Rodgers, a Tom Brady, Peyton Manning, Drew Brees, like just even look at those four guys. Aaron Rodgers won Super Bowl. First ballot Hall of Famer. Drew Brees won Super Bowl. First ballot Hall of Famer. Obviously, Tom Brady's got what has he got? Six on six. His, potentially six. on his way to seven. Who knows? Two hands, man. Two hands. That's insane. The fingers. But even like the all-time great Peyton Manning, two Super Bowls. Like it is, and he played for damn near 20 years. It is. And so he was practically hard. a broken quarterback by the time he won his second. That was an all-time defense there, too. Yeah, so I think it's hard. I think Seahawks fans should kind of maybe, you know, take it down a notch in terms of expectations potentially, but it's fun to root for the team to win the Super Bowl, obviously, but it's fun to be a contender, right? Um, yeah. I. The only other thing I'm going to throw at you here real quick, Ryan, before I know it's getting late for you here, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw one theoretical at you, okay? Given the fact that the odds are against them to win another Super Bowl with Russell Wilson at the helm, would you trade Russell to the Jaguars for the number one overall pick and maybe like another another first round pick or something like that in 2022 and invest the money that you're getting off the, 
the books into an offensive line that is going to like dominate basically. And you have your run game then, and then you have a young quarterback with low, low salary cap hit. Like, is that even an option on the table for you? I mean, obviously they're not going to do that. That's why this is theoretical, but like, is that, is that worth a discussion? That actually kind of goes into what I was thinking. Did Russell win his Super Bowl on his first contract? Yes. Yeah. All right. I mean, like, I think the guy. That's how the league's designed. Yeah. You got to win on your. this all the time. Yeah. They went on their first contract. Like, Pat. So so you would, you would trade Russ. I I think you could legitimately get the first overall pick for Russ. The the thing is with the Seahawks is they got to get like their chip back. Right. They had a bunch of dudes that were underpaid that wanted to get paid. I mean, their 2010 to 2012 drafts were pretty unreal too. Yeah. yeah. They, they got pretty and that, lucky. And that's where they got those dudes that were like undervalued yeah. and they had their chip, right? And then they get paid and, you know, it feels good, right? Like Tom Brady <laughs> never lost that chip. Right. Yeah. That's why he's so good. So I don't know. I think it's not a bad idea. Trevor Lawrence is like unreal good. He's almost a sure thing. You have I would to do a, it. You have to get a quarterback. You do it guru in there yeah i would do it i feel like there has to be a second pick in there somewhere yeah maybe it'd be be nice it'd be nice to get like another second or third rounder this year or maybe a first rounder next year the seahawks would get a first round pick though and trade it away to go in the second round (laughs) (laughs) they'd get get the first overall pick and get like five second round picks for it yeah Yeah. the the other thing is like the o-line is good like i I like paying they could be great though on that payroll (laughs) Didn't the Cowboys have like the greatest O line ever and not? Make I it mean, out? they were really good. Yeah, they were really good. I think the O line matters for sure. But you yeah. like you you have seven guys on your active roster on the offensive line, right? You have your center guards, right, and then one backup for them, and then you have your tackles and the one backup for him, right? You need three of those dudes to be pretty elite. Mm-hmm. But like that Cowboy team, that O line was unreal. Like they should have never had a run under five yards. Yeah. Zeke blew up that year. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he did. But they didn't even make the playoffs. Yeah. I mean, well, that's just the Cowboys though. <laughs> like, yeah, totally. But I'm, I would do it. I'm a big, I'm, I love Russell Wilson. I think yeah. he's the closest thing to Griffey that we've had in the city for a long time. Notice I said closest cause he ain't in that category. No. Just saying, but he, it'd be hard to see him leave. Griffey left. I mean, that's probably the, you know, most I cried as a kid that I can remember outside of Separdo almost breaking my leg in the front yard. <laughs> I think we no. stayed at your house to watch the rest of that game too while you were gone. <laughs> yeah, I bet you probably ate all my damn like, nachos too. <laughs> yeah. That was a good game too. I think that Man, was Man, Julie uh... just made clam dip. This is great. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but I'm a big proponent for getting, you know, quarterback on a rookie salary that can be a game manager and then build the team around them. I think, you know, there's, there's proof that that's been successful. You look up the Eagles with Carson Wentz was on a rookie contract when they won, we were on a rookie contract with Russell Wilson when we won chiefs chiefs with Patrick Mahomes. Like there is absolutely some legitimacy to that. I would hate to see Russell Wilson go because I do think that he's an elite quarterback, but 
man, $35 million of cap space is tough to tie up into one out of 22 starters. Well, That's and if you want to play the way that Pete Carroll wants to play, is $35 million worth it? No. For the quarterback position? No. If he plays so, like the first half of the season, hell yeah, sign me up. I'm back on the sure. rest train, $35 million, whatever. But if we want to run the damn ball, play game management, like you don't pay a game manager $35 million. It's dumb. No. So I know we're getting close to wrapping up this, but before we let you go, Ryan, just want to, again, you know, give you our gratitude for hopping on with these old armchair coaches. I know we text (laughs) back and forth. I don't really know what I'm talking about half the time. You keep me in check, but really appreciate you coming on, being a fan of the podcast, giving us some feedback behind the scenes, but it was awesome to at least see you virtually and spend some time talking with you and, Hopefully we'll be able to do it again soon. And hopefully you guys down in Corvallis will be up and running this spring and back on you know, normal schedule. Yeah, no, I appreciate coming on. I've listened to all 20 of them and it's been awesome <laughs> to see the, see the thing going and, and listening and getting my Husky insight through that, you know. Hopefully we didn't give you too much inside info before that game. I we might've know. given I mean, them a little too much. It got pretty interesting there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Once I get back home and, you know, things are normal, I'd love to catch up in person and, you know, get, get things rolling again. And yeah, for sure. Next time you're up North, give us a text and we'll, you know, even if we have to do socially distanced beers or something, we can get together in the backyard and have a big old bonfire and have a good time and catch up. But thanks again for coming on and I'm sure we'll catch up soon. I appreciate you guys. Thanks Ryan. Yep. See you. That was awesome. And it was great to have Ryan on uh, very generous of him to lend his time to us and kind of be our first like official, you know, kind of interview type role, I guess that we had no. there. So that was cool. <laughs> no disrespect to Justin, but what you really mean is like our first really special guest. <laughs> I didn't say that. I did not say that. Justin, if you're listening, I didn't say that you are a special guest. You are our Seahawks insider Sounders insider, like, Anything that, that true. anything related to those teams, he's typically on our episodes. So he's basically like the. I mean, if I say third wheel, it sounds bad too. Like, uh, <laughs> I, like I don't, I don't know how to, how to describe him, but he's kind of like you know the 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 other host, I guess, the alternate yeah. host of this I, show. So I figured I'd throw a few punches in here while he's not here. To oh, for sure. So well, you know, and then we'll actually shots. know, if, we'll actually know if he listened to the episode or not at that <laughs> yeah. point too, because he'll actually text us tomorrow. Exactly. Um, we do have a couple Husky updates to, to talk about here. And um, the, the big one, I guess we'll start on the, on the negative here. And Pete Kwiatkowski, a guy that Sam, you have talked about a ton on this podcast, yep. especially leading into the Husky season, has left the program and has become Sark's new defensive coordinator down in Texas for the Longhorns. And those are some big shoes to fill. And oh, yeah. I think this this hire that Jimmy Lake is about to do is probably his defining moment as the Husky head coach um, and will determine if he's going to be, you know, a five to 10 year coach or a two to three year coach. So yeah, I could agree more. I want to know your general thoughts though on obviously, uh, obviously Pete K 
leaving the program. Yeah. I mean, I honestly couldn't agree more. I think, you know, last year having the offensive coordinator vacancy, like that's obviously a really big hire, especially as a first time head coach, it's really important, but it wasn't really a risky testing type hire because as long as Pete Kwiatkowski was your defensive coordinator, you were going to be a competitive football team because his defenses have been damn good. Seven years, he was the Huskies defensive coordinator or, or co-DC. Six of those years, we led, the D, we led the Pac-12 in scoring defense. He is, without a doubt, the most elite or one of the most elite defensive coordinators from a pure scheme X's and O's perspective. And I think if I'm a Texas fan, I'm jumping out of my seat pumped because this shows a couple of things. One, that Sark is making potentially the unsexy hire, but also the really smart hire. Sark is an offensive guy through and through. He's going to you know, resurrect that Texas offense for sure, no doubt about it. And he really needed to hire someone that could do two things. One, that they could come in and play successful defense against a pass-happy conference of the Big 12. Pete Kwiatkowski, check. And second, he needed someone, and probably most importantly, that he could entrust the entire defensive side of the ball to. Someone that's proven, someone that he can hand the reins over, be hands-off, focus on the offense, and let PK handle the defense and you know i'm going to become a huge texas longhorn fan i want to see them shake things up in terms of you know the blue bloods i want to see them get in the mix with alabama clemson ohio state this will not become a texans lawn texas longhorns uh podcast by the way sam it it won't it won't i promise but i'm rooting for sark and i really am rooting for pk i think Pete Kwiatkowski, you know He's a great dude from some of the inside information that we've been able to gather. And, you know, whether it was his selfless move, you know, allowing space for Jimmy Lake to continue to grow within the program and really was the catalyst for Jimmy Lake, you know, ascending into the head coaching position that he holds today at the University of Washington, owes a debt of gratitude that could not be put into words to Pete Kwiatkowski. Us as Husky fans enjoying the success that we've recently had. Oh, a debt of gratitude to Pete Kwiatkowski. And, you know, I'm, I was shocked. I'm really bummed. I'm really nervous for the Huskies where we go from here. But Pete Kwiatkowski is a guy that deserves the chance to prove how good and how genius he is on a national scale. And from a, a here realist perspective i don't know if that was going to happen here in the pac-12 or with uw and so i'm happy for him to get that opportunity i'm sure he's going to be paid handsomely probably make double the money there and you know i'll be excited to see what him and sark can conjure up down in austin i'll be watching but refocusing on what it means for the dogs I know you and I were texting all, you know, the last couple of days as this news was kind of breaking. I'm pretty freaking nervous, man. And the way that yeah. you teed it up, you couldn't have teed it up any better because I, you know, I don't 
typically overreact to things like this or jump to conclusions, but this is huge. This is a huge decision and a huge hire for Jimmy Lake. And, you know, I, I have empathy for the guy first year head coach. You got to replace two offensive assistants, offensive coordinator, tight ends coach. You have to deal with, you know, the, you know, most pervasive pandemic in recent history. Mm-hmm. And now you have your, you know, your soundboard, your defensive, you know, master to a degree that you learned from leave and depart to go to Texas and you're kind of left picking up the pieces. And it just seems like Jimmy Lake can't keep the momentum rolling forward and building. And it's just one thing after another kind of two steps back, one step forward situation that we're in. And so I guess I'd pose the question to you, Connor, you know, I kind of see this going to one of two ways, either Jimmy Lake wants to continue some staff continuity here and, you know, promote within and try to hold most of this defensive staff intact. One quick note there is that it, the situation in Texas is kind of odd in the sense that most of the defensive staff has already been hired. So there's not a huge risk that Pete Kwiatkowski is going to bring many of the Huskies defensive coaches with him. Maybe one, one guy or that two. he want to bring. I hope he brings one person in particular, but we'll see if that works out. So I guess getting back to my question to you is I think it goes one of two ways. You either promote within, keep the staff largely intact, make an external hire to, you know, fill in the gap somewhere. Or does Jimmy Lake take the opportunity to kind of more or less blow this defensive staff up, retain the guys that he's really jacked about, and then, go find some young enthusiastic guys that he can mold into the coaches that he wants. It's a great question, Sam. And before I answer that, I want to get across two points. The The first one being, um, or I guess touch on two points, I should say. Um, why did Pete leave? And I think there's three reasons. I think money obviously is a huge thing. Texas just has a lot more to offer than UW does. Um, especially coming out of a COVID ridden season, uh, Texas just has more access to those kinds of funds. Um, I think there's an element that the PAC 12 is basically irrelevant and, um, he wants to coach for a team that could possibly be on the national stage and he'll have a bigger spotlight on himself. And then the third one is that I think he wants to get a little bit out of Jimmy Lake's shadow. And he's obviously been, he's, he's taken bullets for the UW program in order to keep Jimmy Lake on staff in the past. And that was under Chris Peterson. And I think he was married to Chris Peterson, but Kim Kim Grenold said it best on their podcast. I don't think he's married to Jimmy Lake at all. And this is evidence of it right here. Um, I don't know if necessarily they had like a tenuous relationship or anything like that. Pete Kwiatkowski doesn't really seem like that type of guy that would kind of cause drama like that. No, but I think, I mean, an opportunity came a fold. And I mean, the other thing is that Sark, um, (laughs) Sark identified a guy that had given him trouble in the past. Yeah. 
Pete Kukowski on his exit interview, I can't remember if it was with The Athletic or with Softy. It was one of those interviews, um, which he lent lend his time to those guys and talked heaps and phrases about the UW program. So like, He's a gracious guy. Yeah, there's no ill will between him and UW. Um, and we, both Sam and I, appreciate what Pete has done. This isn't like any kind of slander at Pete Kukowski or anything like that. But uh, one of the things that he mentioned on his exit interview was uh, he was asked what his favorite games were. And the first one that came out of his mouth was the 2015 game against USC. Yep. And uh, it was game down at USC that the Huskies won kind of a, you know, slog fest down and upset the Trojans down in, down in LA. Um, and it really set coach Sarkeesian into his downward spiral it did. and tumultuous and it, end. And the exact opposite for Peterson, right? Like that was yep. his second year, I think. Yeah. Yeah. So um, it started that upward tra- trajectory there for, for the UW program. And so that was a defining moment, I think, in this, in, in this, um, at, at UW, just in general, and for P- Pete Kwiatkowski as a defensive mind. And I think Sark recognized that in that game. And then also recognized the, like you said, the, um, the issues that he'd given air raid offenses in the past with, especially with Apple cup. And then um, obviously recognized the issues that he was given some of, I mean, not a lot of issues, mostly it was a personnel thing, but he was given some issues to Alabama's offense too, whenever, um, especially earlier in that game in the final four game against Alabama in 2017, or uh, that was 2016 still. It was the end of 2016. Who was the offensive assistant at the time? Sark. So Steve Sarkeesian. Yeah. So uh, what what I'm saying is that he identified a guy that had got, he had given him problems in the past, remembered his name, obviously remembered him because he probably follows Washington because he had coached here in the past and familiar with, with, the west coast in general but and he's and he's also really familiar with the chris peterson coaching tree because right. when he was here at uw and he made the defensive overhaul he hired a bunch of guys from chris peterson's boise state staff he hired justin mm-hmm. wilcox to be our mm-hmm. defensive coordinator brought peter yep. sermon in to be a linebackers coach it's almost as but if there's a bunch of good coaches in the chris peterson tree there's a shit ton of them <laughs> jonathan smith at oregon state's one of them yep Yep, for sure. And Sapardo would definitely stamp his approval on that one too. So count Sapardo in that tree. He's worked for Peterson, yep. Choate, exactly. Jonathan Smith. Yep. For sure. So um Sark obviously identified someone that had given him trouble in the past and went after him. And I think he said that basically in his interview too, when he was introducing coach coach Pete K at at as their DC um, that they're going to take whatever it was to get him to Texas. Cause that's the guy that they wanted. It was their first choice, I think. And um, Sark's it, we talked about this. If Sark's able to hire the right guys, he's going to turn that Texas program around. And I think they're going to be good. Next like year. that's, that's a big hire. Um, one of another listener that I have, um, on here, Nick Baraka, one of my good buddies from high school. He he's going to graduate school at UT 
So he's a little bit of a Longhorns fan. Gave me some shit on Twitter or on uh, <laughs> not on Twitter on via text message earlier this week. So shout out to you, Nick. You guys are expecting good things down in down in Austin, and um, I think that program is definitely going to be on the rise here pretty quickly. To answer your question, Sam, though, about where do we go at the de- defensive coordinator position? I would be shocked if they didn't internally hire or like internally promote. Um, and with that, I think it's going to be a Kaika Malloy. Is that how you say his name? Yep. Yeah. Um, who was co-defensive coordinator and defensive line coach yep. Yep. for, for the Huskies this last year. Um, I would be shocked if, if it wasn't him, he has previous defensive coordinator. Um experience with with utah state before he came back to uw um obviously was is a husky alum played for the huskies um and uh is a decent fit and some realm of continuity the reason i'm i'm a little bit more bullish on on that than possibly going outside the program is that the issue has not been the defense with this team if anything it's been kind of like ups and downs with the offensive side of the ball. And I think as much continuity as you can keep on that defensive side of the ball is the better and safer way to go. And you know that you have talent and Jimmy Lake is your head coach as a defensive mind. He called plays for two years. You talked about how under Pete Kwiatkowski, uh, he was the defensive coordinator or co-defensive coordinator for seven years and the Huskies um, ranked in uh, or were first in the Pac-12 in scoring defense in six out of those seven years. And I think uh, Pete K called plays for five of those years and they were ranked first in four of them. Yep. So Jimmy has also been on top of that as well. Not that I want him to call plays, but he should be able to make a good hire here. Like he should be able to identify where this program needs to go on the defensive side of the ball. He's yep. a smart defensive mind. Um, PK, you're not going to fill his shoes. Like you're just not like that's it's, it's a massive, massive loss. And, um, I don't know, uh, what the long-term ramifications of this are, but in the short term, I think a guy, if you plug in a Kaika Malloy and maybe hire someone like an ACE recruiter or something like that to fill in his role along the defensive line or outside linebackers, which was where PK was. I think that is probably the best case scenario. Um, I know it's not the sexy hire that a lot of Husky fans are maybe looking for, but I think that's that's where we should be looking. Um, what are your thoughts, though, Sam? I don't. I know that there's some other guys that they're looking at, kind of outside of, or at least have been rumored to be looking at outside of this pool that is internal. Um, what what are, what are your thoughts, and what are some names that you would throw out there? Yeah, I think before getting into the names, I think that, you know, I kind of laid out the path, like, do you promote within? Do you go external? Mm -hmm. Kind of like shake things up a little bit, because if you do go external, you have a Kaika Malloy, who's been the co-defensive coordinator. If he doesn't get promoted, that probably isn't going to sit well with him. He might, you know, take off and go. So I think if you do hire externally, we should expect some additional defensive staff turnover here the other underlying theme that has been pretty 
prevalent and you know the rumor mill is peak Bukowski was an extremely good x's and o's defensive coordinator Mm -hmm. he wasn't the best recruiter he wasn't a recruiting liability yeah but the general thoughts and feelings of the husky faithful right now is that we haven't recruited at the level that we would expect in the last two to three classes defensively sure and so i think an underlying theme to this hire is do you try to replace Kwiatkowski like for like and go get someone that is a dynamic play caller and a proven play caller? Or do you find someone who's maybe a little bit younger, more enthusiastic, more plugged in with the student athletes of today's day and age that can be a dynamic recruiter while Jimmy Lake can help with some of the play calling duties and you know hold that new defensive coordinator's hand, so to speak? And so I think, you know, there's five names here that come to mind for me. Obviously, we mentioned Akaika Malloy off the top. Seems like the obvious choice. That would be more of the realm of staying within what you have. But he's also a really dynamic recruiter. He's a really good recruiter. He isn't a super proven defensive coordinator. I actually just looked up his coaching history and he was the defensive line coach at Utah state. He only has one or two years of defensive coordinator experience. And that was at Yale. Oh, that was at Yale. Okay. So he's not like a, I wouldn't call him a proven DC. So I think that was probably the Yale of DCs. Yeah, there you go. I think he's probably the best fit because he's someone that Jimmy Lake can mold from a play calling X and X's and O's perspective And he also has a really dynamic ability to recruit highly regarded players. I think alternatively, if they're going to hire within, it would be Bob Gregory, who in in my opinion is the opposite of that. Obviously we've kind of dragged his name through the mud, maybe, you know, not in all fairness, this, this pot, you know, this season or two, but he, it's completely fair. It's fair. His inside linebacker group has been awful, but he is the one proven defensive coordinator that we currently have. He was the DC for the golden age of Cal Bears football under Jeff Tedford with Aaron Rodgers, Marshawn Lynch in the you know early to mid-2000s. Actually, I think he was there for maybe the whole decade. And so that would make sense, but he is not a recruiter at all. His recruiting has been suspect. He's been a liability in that regard. And so then the other theme is you know, maybe the sexy way to go is not hire within and go get a really young gun guy that's going to be an ace recruiter. And a couple of those names out there are Gerald Alexander, Dante Williams, Court Dennison. They all have their own unique attachments to Jimmy Lake or to the Husky program. Gerald Alexander, Dante Williams have been graduate assistants on the defensive side of the ball at UW historically. And then Court Dennison, name should sound familiar. He played for the Huskies in Sarkeesian's, you know, final couple years. I guess laying it out that way, and and I see you you entered in a new name here too. I'll let you talk about that guy because that yeah. would be an awesome hire. But I guess going a layer deeper of this onion is which way would you like it like to see us go emphasize trying to hire someone like for like that's a you know x's and o's defensive guru or hire someone that's a little bit more 
moldable by Jimmy Lake from that perspective, but can really hold their weight and pull in some big fish in terms of highly ranked recruits? It's a really good question. Again, Sam, you got good questions tonight. You're on your interviewing mode. I can tell. Um, I've got my A game today, baby. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I think the way that college football is trending, you have to go the recruiting route and just with the way that, that the transfer portal is an issue now and just the way that recruiting is, as far as just like, you want kind of like the sexy glam, like fiery young coaches, like that's who the guys want to play for now. I think that's kind of what you have to go with now. I think that old school X's and O's mentality, like, well, it's, it can still be effective. Like there's no doubt that that can be effective. And I think you still need an element of that. Um, I think that that is starting to kind of fade a bit. Like the dudes, you have to get the dudes in the door. I think you need the talent for sure. And especially just with the state of the PAC 12 too, you just need as much recruiting help as possible. Um, so I, I think that's the way that I would lean. I can totally see the argument for the other way as well. Obviously we had so much success under Pete K and he was the X's and O's dude. Um, and and he wasn't a bad recruiter. He did end no. up landing Savelle Smalls, Layoff sure. Latu, ZTF. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, and especially, yeah. And in the last couple of years, like, he aced it in that category because yeah. he was the outside linebackers kind of recruiter um, and definitely got pulled in a ton of talent there. Um, but, I mean, at the same – like, there, there's scheming. Like, the scheming is, is part of the game, and yep. there needs to be an element of that. And I think having some kind of experience with that is, is great. Um, but I think you have to go with an ace recruiter at this point. I think that's, that's going to be your new hire. And that's why I think, again, kind of reiterate, reiterates my point that if you promote Akaika and he's already a good recruiter, he becomes the defensive coordinator, not really like a, like a proven defensive coordinator, like you said, but he has some experience with that and was the co-defensive coordinator last year, technically. So um, is familiar with the scheme and the play calls and all that stuff. And you have some level of continuity there and familiar with the personnel and everything. And you keep that recruiting element that he has. And then you hire someone from the outside. That's an ACE recruiter. Um, And I don't think that you'd be able to, swindle any of these guys that we just talked about into being a positions coach or anything right. like that they'd probably need at least a co-defensive coordinator title which maybe mm-hmm. i don't maybe i mean it, it's definitely a possibility i it's i i wouldn't rule it out especially for a guy like gerald alexander or court dennison um i could see them possibly taking like a co-defensive coordinator role and then being like an outside linebackers coach as well or inside linebackers coach or whatever ends up being being that Fitzgerald Alexander would obviously be secondary and then we'd be talking about some turnover in the secondary coaches so right we'll see what happens there there's obviously just a lot a lot to unpack here and a lot to unfold and a lot of possibilities out there um the other only other guy that I did throw on here though Sam is Jeff Choate and obviously Sapardo would you know, put his stamp of approval on this guy as well. A guy that he's followed around a little bit from Washington to Montana state and help kind of grow, grow his, his career and 
a guy that was at UW before and um, really good special teams mind, but also a defensive minded guy as well. Um, I think he coached defensive line when and, he was at yep. UW as well. D line and special teams. Yep. So um, a, another Chris Peterson tree guy. And I think it'd be a home run hire. He's obviously the head coach over at Montana state right now. So it would be kind of a demotion if you're looking at that, but he'd also be, be he'd, he'd be paid a lot better at UW as a defensive coordinator than he would as a head coach at Montana state, just because of budget purposes. And you've seen, I mean, you have seen like a big sky head coach move to a coordinator role in the PAC 12 with Bo Baldwin, leaving Eastern Washington, going to Cal and calling plays on the offensive side of the ball for Justin Wilcox down there. So I, I wouldn't rule it out. It's, I would say that it's definitely not the most likely hire at this point, but it's a guy that should definitely talk to. For um, sure. And if, if Jimmy's not talking to Jeff Choate, that's a mistake. And that's a big, no, no, <laughs> not, not yeah. an approval by me at that point. Um, I'm sure he is though. Like I'd be surprised if they haven't had at least a phone conversation about it yeah. and who knows if he's interested in it or not, but certainly a name to bring up, I'd say. Yeah, and here's the kicker on that one, is if you asked me this in a vacuum, I would abs- I would say there's no chance that Jeff Choate is going to leave a head coaching job. He's had some success at Montana State. He's not going to leave that program to come here and be the defensive coordinator. However, we don't live in a vacuum. And a very, very important thing has happened in Choate's career path that could lend this to be a more reasonable outcome than we might think. And that is the fact that Brian Harson, the former head coach at Boise state left to go now be the head coach at Auburn left the head coach vacancy at Boise state. That opening basically came down to Jeff Choate again, a Chris Peterson disciple, a, you know, coached at Boise state for many years himself and Andy Avalos, who was the defensive coordinator for Oregon, also a Chris Peterson guy, has ties to Boise State. Came down to those two. Boise State ended up choosing Andy Avalos over Jeff Choate. And so the reason I bring this up is that I think Jeff Choate enjoys coaching in Bozeman and Montana State, but I also think he's a guy that has higher aspirations than what Montana State can provide. And I do think that he wants to be a head coach at, you know, a more storied program and a higher level of competition. And the fact that he was passed over for the head coaching job that he honestly makes the most sense to be the head coach for says something. And if I'm him, I'm thinking internally, like, okay, if I wasn't, if I didn't have the resume to get the head coaching job at Boise state, based on where I'm currently at. I think that there's some legitimacy to the thought process that him moving to a defensive coordinator role, proving himself as a legitimate defensive mind at the PAC 12 level could potentially be seen as the springboard he needs to getting a head coaching job somewhere like a Boise state down the road or a Colorado or an Arizona state or, you know, a wazoo, something like that. And so I think that there's some, I'm more 
open to that actually being a realistic opportunity. I would love that. I think that'd be a great hire and it would be a lot of continuity there as well. But I guess, you know, boiling this down and kind of concluding our thoughts on, on this whole process, I'll answer the question first and then I'll get your thoughts on it as well is if you're Jimmy Lake, what would you do? What I would do is I would promote Akaika Malloy to be defensive coordinator. I would hope that Bob Gregory follows Pete Kwiatkowski to Texas to fill their inside linebackers coaching vacancy. If not, I hope that by promoting Akaika Malloy, Bob Gregory sees the writing on the wall that he's not going to be promoted as DC. You know where I'm going. Get him out of the picture. Akaika Malloy takes over as the defensive coordinator, maintains his position assignment to the defensive line. And then you promote John Timu, a former linebacker for the University of Washington Huskies, had you know a handful of years with the Chicago Bears in the NFL, is back on staff in more of a you know office cubicle type role for us right now. Actually, I think he might have moved up into a G a GA role. Yeah. He Promote him to be your full-time linebackers outside and inside linebackers coach. That's what I would do. Because in that way, you're you have staff continuity. Mm-hmm. You upgrade your recruiting prowess at both defensive coordinator position and at linebacker. Yeah. And you further your, your connection to the Polynesian pipeline by promoting a Polynesian to be your defensive coordinator and your inside linebackers, outside linebackers coach and John Timu. And in my honest opinion, one of the greatest ways that we can recruit talent and get the kind of athletes that we need is to continue to recruit the Hawaiian islands and get those guys to the university of Washington We've seen us, you know, we've had success there in the past and that would be, you know, gun held to my head. That is what I would do. What would you do? I think I would do something very similar. Um, I mentioned before that I think promoting Akaika Malloy is the first step here. And I think that that's the most rational decision. And again, it's not the sexy hire, but um, it's a guy that... that He's well proven enough and he's beloved by this roster um, as far as as far as we know from the outside and a guy that's well respected in the program and a guy that I mean blood has bled purple and gold before so I think that that's that's a really good really good guy to be leading your defense and yeah I mean we've mentioned enough that Bob Gregory's got to go one way or another (laughs) like I don't know I don't know how it happens but it's just it has not been good and maybe I mean if he gets promoted and he becomes defensive coordinator like I would probably lose my shit emergency podcast yeah but um like you said I mean he's been a, a quality defensive coordinator in the past but I mean at the same time like I said earlier I think he's he and you said earlier too, he's more of an X's and O's guy. He's not a recruiter and he's not a personnel guy. Like we've seen that on full display. He can't identify personnel worth shit. And you um, kind of have to discount his DC experience. It was 
20 years ago. Right. Well, that's what I'm saying. It's like, it's outdated, like whatever yeah. experience that he has had um, at this point. And he, he's a good coach. Like he's a good, like technical coach, like and fundamentals and all that type of stuff. But I just, I, I think the game has passed him at this point and he needs to either hang him up or go elsewhere. I don't know how that happens, but um, I'm kind of done with Bob Gregory. Um, and then, yeah, I mean, a, a John Timu would be nice. That'd be, that'd be sweet. Um, I think it makes a lot of sense uh, just given the position that he's in right now. And I'd be surprised if he isn't a part of this promotion process, if, if it goes kind of the way that we're thinking it will. Um, the, o- the only caveat that I'll bring to any of that is if Jeff Choate is real, like actually like serious about possibly coming back, like that would gauge my interest. And it might shake a lot of things up on that defensive side of the ball, but it might be worth it. Yeah. And the only reason I say that too is we don't know how long Jimmy Lake is going to hang around. And... Um, Jeff Choate is a guy with head coaching experience now and possibly a guy that maybe you look forward to that if he's hired in that role, would he grow into a candidate for a future head coaching position? Um, I don't be. think that, I don't think that Jimmy Lake is a 10, 15 year guy at UW. I think he's got greater aspirations than being a college head coach. Um, as great as, as great as being the head coach at the university of Washington is, well, if he's got those aspirations, he better he better make a damn good hire in the next couple of weeks if he yep. wants to realize those aspirations. For sure. And I think, uh, like we said at the start of this, it, it's this is this is the like probably the one defining moment of Jimmy yeah. Lake's tenure as head coach of of UW. And like you said, the John Donovan hire, like that could flame out, and he could hire someone else, and that'd be fine. But, um, but. Uh, hiring someone to continue the success they've had on defense is way more integral to the long-term success here at UW, especially just with the way that we've defined ourselves as a defensive minded kind of team and kind of a hard nosed West coast football team like we are. And the, and obviously Jimmy just being a defensive mind himself, if he strikes out on this, the rags on the wall at that point, I think. So, yeah. We'll see what happens. It's it's huge. Like this is, I mean, this is a this is obviously a topic that Sam and I didn't expect to be talking about on this podcast this off season. So um, obviously makes for good engagement as far as talking points and stuff like that. But it's not necessarily something that samurai samurai are very happy about. But we'll see what happens. Maybe I mean maybe it turns out fine. Like it, this this doesn't necessarily mean that doom and gloom is on the horizon for the UW program, but it does mean there's, there's big question marks right now. And this is probably the most unsure that I felt about this program since we uh, lost Sark and before we hired Peterson and Sam, I think you and I were texting about this earlier this week. I think we both agree on that front. Yeah, absolutely. I think the, Again, kind of, you know, I have empathy for Jimmy Lake in this scenario. Like he's been dealt an extremely difficult hand as a first time head coach. I hope he can figure it out. But as a fan, I'm certainly, you know, the most 
anxious I've been since, as you mentioned, Sarkeesian's departure. So hopefully Jimmy Lake can make a studly hire here and we can get this momentum rolling and the pandemic starts to slow down and we can see Jimmy Lake kind of build some momentum that we, you know, kind of anticipated that he would and has yet to really capitalize on building that momentum and that hype and building enthusiasm around the program. So I'm hopeful, I'm optimistic, but at the same time, my stomach's turning just a little bit. Yeah, for sure. But you know who else is optimistic is Jimmy Lake, Mr. Optimism himself. So it's the right mindset to have at your head coaching position, um, especially going into kind of an unknown period like we're going into right now. So certainly be interesting. And Sam and I will for sure be talking about whoever they end up hiring at that defensive coordinator Yep. Uh, position in a future episode um when it, I'm, I'm assuming that 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 hire will probably happen in the next couple of weeks is my guess but we'll see what happens yeah and if they hire internally it could happen tomorrow, tomorrow morning yeah for sure yeah so we'll if, get a we'll get a podcast up as soon as that's announced for sure yep for sure so let's switch over to some good news though and sam i think we got to take full credit for what happened yesterday this being a Thursday night podcast. Wednesday night, it was announced by the Pac-12 that Larry Scott is going to mutually part ways with being the commissioner of the Pac-12 in June. So We did it. We, we did, did it. it. Hashtag fire Larry Scott. We did it. That's, that's the end of the podcast right there. We served our purpose. That's it. Uh, no. Or we still have plenty to talk about, but this is yesterday was amazing, man. I mean, not in the not to get like too deep into politics here, but I think most of our listeners are probably sharing the same feelings we are. Trump is out, Larry Scott is out, and the Husky men's basketball team won a goddamn basketball game. Last <laughs> Shocking. Night. So how can like i mean that's three for three right there like that's not much better of a day right there as far as like full world spectrum so i'm fired up right now honestly like with like we've talked so much and endlessly about how ridiculous the state of the pac-12 is and larry scott is fully at the center of like all of that like he is fully to blame basically for everything that is related to the irrelevancy of the Pac-12 at this point. So, I mean, where do we go from here as a conference? Like, I mean, I obviously it came a day too late. Maybe if Larry Scott wasn't commissioner on, you know, Sunday or Monday, Pete K doesn't leave, but yeah. Where do you see this conference going now? Like, I mean, I think, I think, I think, it can only go up. <laughs> yeah, I think it, I, I think it can only go up. But yeah, I think Pac-12 has for sure hit rock bottom right now. I think, you know, you have to find someone that's going to inject some passion and enthusiasm and really, you know, put some of their self worth into how the Pac-12 actually performs on the field, on the court. And Larry Scott just didn't do that. He was into this job for himself. Go, you know, 
look up John Canzano down in Oregon. He's been, you know, one of the most vocal critics of Larry Scott, but he goes into great detail of some of Larry Scott's antics and, you know, money decisions. He, you know, the pandemic's been really hard on a lot of people and a lot of businesses. I'm in finance with a business that's going through the pandemic. I know the hard decisions that businesses are making. Larry Scott furloughed a lot of Pac-12 employees and then accelerated his own personal bonus. Great leader. Yeah. Great leader does that. So needless to say, it was for sure the right move for the presidents. And it was an overdue move. And to get him out of there. So first and foremost, you need to find a leader, somebody that's not going to pull bullshit like that sure. in tough times for people. And just find somebody that has some strong leadership skills. At this point, I don't even give a damn if they're tied into the sports world or not. I, we just need leadership. And so I would start there. And then I think secondly, you know, if you can find someone that has those leadership skills and is well entrenched into the sports world, even better. But this conference has lacked leadership for the last decade. And that's literally all I'm looking for in this new hire. I agree with you on some points. I think they do definitely need to look at someone that has college athletics background. Um, Point being that Larry Scott came from being, I think the commissioner or CEO, whatever they call it, of like the women's tennis association before he was hired on as the PAC 12 commissioner. And then went on to basically um, make a network that was used to try to uh, enhance the exposure of Olympic sports in the Pac-12, which is like, sure, great, whatever. But like, that's not how you make money in today's college sports infrastructure. It's all on football and basketball. I'm sorry, but like those are the sports that you have to weigh the most because those yeah. are the money-making sports, right? Especially college football. And repeatedly and repeatedly, we have seen Larry Scott over again. He undermined the importance of those two sports, right? Yeah. He put way too much emphasis on trying to expose and, and enhance the exposure of of Olympic sports and, and, and in the same realm, he undermined the, the struct revenue generating the, yeah, the revenue generators of football and basketball, men's basketball specifically. So having someone that is familiar with that like structure of kind of how college athletics works from a money-making perspective and from a revenue generating perspective is extremely important like leadership for sure like that like i understand sam like that's that's a huge thing and larry scott like awful leader as well like strike three five four yeah. five whatever you want to say on larry scott the two guys that i'm looking at here and they've been talked about a lot are both ad's for probably top two or three teams in 
in the college football realm. And you're looking at Gene Smith at Ohio State. He's the AD there. And you're looking at Greg Byrne, the Alabama AD. Yeah. And I think that's your list. I've heard some people pull up Slick Rick, New Heisel. <laughs> I, he, he obviously has he has the experience within not only the conference and college athletics in general. I think that'd be, I think that part he checks. I don't know if he has the experience to manage something. Yeah. To that. Yeah. To that type of like size, I guess. Yeah. I think if we get either of the two guys you mentioned, that is a home run hire and the pac 12 is, I think they need to do to whatever races. whatever they can do to get one of those two guys in. Like I I'm sorry, that's the list right there for me. For me personally. No, I'm like, with you. There's other guys that you could throw out there like I mean the people are talking about Chris Peterson and shit. Like that's not going to happen, guys. Yeah, Chris over his dead body would yeah. he want to be the commissioner would, of the Pac-12? He does not want to be associated with college athletics in this atmosphere. Like no. he is very much against like the transfer portal and basically like this like free agency type thing that college athletics is all about now yeah not for paying for players yeah not gonna happen um you need someone that has experience at being at a successful program and knows the ins and outs of like a revenue generating sport and how to you know display that and uh contextualize that to a conference-wide realm. So Greg Byrne, Gene Smith, that's who I'm looking at. If it's anyone else, um, I think it's a little bit underwhelming. Doesn't mean that it's not going to work out, but that's who I'm looking at. Are there any other names that you can think of? Like, I No, I haven't dug really deep into this one. I've been pretty focused on the Husky defensive coordinator opening. Yep. I'll dive into it some more and maybe on our next podcast, I'll have some sure. more names, but I know the one that has really, you know, been at the top of my radar is Greg Byrne. I think he's, he has previous PAC 12 experience. I think at mm. UCLA, I think it makes a lot of sense. Open the checkbooks, baby, get them. Yep. Need them. And that's what it's going to take. It's going to take money. Like they, but they've got to do it. Like, I'm sorry. Yeah. If, it's an investment at this point. You're investing in a, in, a, in a CEO or a commissioner here to lead you out of the fucking red that you're in right now. Would it be Jen Cohen? No, there's no way, dude. No way. Maybe. Who knows? We hired Larry Scott, so yeah. she'd be better than he was. <laughs> she would be. I don't think she'd be a home run hire. Um, yeah. I... I, she'd do better than Larry. I think they'd be fine. But if we're talking about making the Pac-12 or like relevant on a national stage within the next two to three years, yeah, those are the two guys that you go after. The other guy that I see here, I'm just like looking up candidates and stuff. Um, is Ray Anderson at Arizona State? He's the AD there. I don't know much about him, but that's another guy I guess to keep your eye on. So kind of an intra conference ad um that maybe has some some sex appeal there but 
Um, I'm I'm looking outside the conference at this point because yeah, we need new blood. And, and anyone from the Pac-12 right now, I think, is a little bit tainted. So yeah, I agree. We'll see what happens. Uh, that uh, obviously. Sam and I have a lot more to talk about than we thought we were going to have to talk about at this point in the off season. So, I mean, kind of hope yeah. it stays that way, but at the same time, like it'd be nice to not like have bad news to talk about. So hopefully it's mostly good news from here on out. Um, this, this PAC 12 hire and this DC hire are huge. I mean, absolutely huge for yeah. the relevancy of not only the PAC 12, but the Washington program for the next, you know, five years at least. So this is something to definitely watch and keep your eyes on over the next, you know, couple weeks. I know that the UW president, the Wazoo president, I think the Oregon president are the quote unquote search committee for the next commissioner for the PAC 12. So UW does have a, a large say in who ends up being in that position and ends up being the successor to Larry Scott. So we'll see what happens. I mean, it's like I said, I think there's two guys that you go after, but there's no doubt they're going to do their homework and they know a lot more about this, this stuff than I do. So got to trust the conference's leadership at this point. That isn't Larry Scott and hope that they make a, a good hire and, let's get the Pac-12 back on the map, man. Like I'm tired of being like in a distant fifth or even sixth, as far as just like conference relevancy, we call ourselves a power five and we're probably sixth right now in in terms of conference relevancy, especially on a, on a football scale. So it's huge. This is just this, this is massive. So can't, can't, can't uh disclaim that enough (laughs) it's 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 a huge huge thing that we're going into here it'll be fun to follow no doubt we'll keep you updated yep for sure we will um i think that's probably going to call it a wrap here if you have anything else to say or you know talk to our listeners about sam before i give us a little sign off no not really again like as we always say we love to hear from you so please you know, text us, call us, leave us a voice message on the anchor platform. You can find that link in the header description on the platform that you listen to podcasts and subscribe and follow. We want to grow this base and we'll continue trying to bring on, you know, engaging guests like we did today. And we hope you continue to enjoy it because we're having a damn good time. Thanks for listening folks. And until next time, go dogs.